0: 360 degrees, high high, three hundred and sixty degrees, high high, three hundred and six, three hundred and six, three hundred and sixty degrees, high high
1: Good evening everyone and welcome to Full Circle. Your cultural affairs radio magazine. This show is written, produced, and recorded by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program in Huchin, occupied Ohlone Territory, also known to colonizers as the Bay Area. Tonight's broadcast is the second show in my series focused on healing racialized trauma in the African American community. I'm your host, Theodora. Please stay with us. Welcome back to Full Circle. I'm your host, Theodora. Before I get into the show tonight, I want to share with you a sound collage I created that briefly chronicles the kidnapped African's experience in these United States over the past 400 years. Take a listen. <laughs>
0: Commonly, some of us would get up a tree to keep a lookout for any assailant or kidnapper that might come upon us, for they sometimes took those opportunities of our parents' absence to attack and carry off as many as they could seize. One day, when all our people were gone out to their works as usual, and only I and my dear sister were left to mind the house, two men and a woman got over our walls, and in a moment seized us both. And without giving us time to cry out or make resistance, they stopped our mouths and ran off with us into the nearest wood. We were immediately conducted to the merchant's yard, where we were all pent up together like so many sheep in a fold, without regard to sex or age. We were not many days in the merchant's custody before we were sold after their usual manner. Why are parents to lose their children, brothers their sisters, husbands their wives? Is this some new refinement in cruelty which, while it has no advantage to atone for it, thus aggravates distress and adds fresh horrors even to the wretchedness of slavery?
1: Twenty pounds for the wench, and she was nearly four months showing. And then, if she didn't take the pops and die, I got eight ninety right here. Nine
2: nine. Would you give me that Would you give me that Would you give me that I got you eight ninety. Nine
3: nine. Oh, for the eight hundred and ninety dollars. That's a good buy. Eight, Someone eight, had to pick the cotton. Someone had a plan the cut. His eyes. He's not even close to being broken. It's hard now.
2: 1860, there are roughly four million enslaved Africans in the United States.
1: For much of the 20th century, African-Americans in the South were barred from the voting booth, sent to the back of the bus, and walled off from many of the rights they deserved as American citizens. Segregation
4: was legal, and the system was called Jim Crow. Well, my grandmother always told me, you have a certain place, and stay in it. Shut up and dribble. My grandfather was just as free of a white man, he was a real snake.
1: At that time, you you, you did something that you shouldn't do if you're black, they would hang you.
5: And when they got ready to lynch him, they'd have a picnic. We believe in God, we
1: believe in the United States of America, and we believe that God has commanded us to separate ourselves from other races. Make America great again.
2: We're back, and we're gonna keep coming back. You will not replace alive. us. You will not erase us. They're the going
3: sing a song that you and I Come know, go, go, go. good enough. Oh, wow.
4: honoring the founding fathers who were white. We're honoring all of the great down. white men no movement, no who are being smeared and defamed come in and from
5: worn the, uh, down west to east. And please comfort them in their time of need. And Father, please Let's give us it. the dedication and the strength to be able to stand for righteousness and justice. You right? you did? Yeah, and please I'm protect good. us on this event today. Send your angels to guide and guard us, and may we have a uh, good event that glorifies You're still you pointing.
4: Your in your window yeah, in
2: But uh, uh, we will definitely not uh, shut up and dribble.
4: We're working
5: for a world where black people are thriving, where we are resilient and we're not just surviving, where we get to be our whole selves, where we get to dream and imagine, where our children get to walk down the streets and we don't get to fear for their lives. We are working for a world where black people are actually free.
4: Black activists today,
5: we are part of a long legacy of black folks fighting for our freedom fighting for the very fabric of American democracy we stand on the shoulders of giants black lives matter black lives matter black lives matter, black lives matter. Black lives matter.
1: welcome back to full circle you just heard a sound collage i created that describes the dehumanizing racism we've encountered in this country for the past 400 years. It's a topic that's often discussed, one that we're all too familiar with. But on tonight's show, we'll be talking about another form of racism that grew out of our horrific treatment in America. We'll be discussing internalized racism. It's an often unconscious form of racism that black folk wield on each other. And it's a topic we rarely discuss. We'll hear from licensed clinical psychologist Dr. Watts Jones. We also have in the studio with us tonight Dr. Taj Johns, Ph.D., They'll help us understand what internalized racism is and talk about strategies to heal from the soul wounds that internalized racism creates. Let's listen to part one of my interview with Dr. D. Watts-Jones.
4: I started out as a uh, social worker. I knew from high school that I wanted to be a therapist, um, but at the time that I was in college, I did not really want to spend what I was told was seven years in graduate school, and so I elected to do a two-year program, um, and I worked for several years as a social worker in a hospital. And then I went back to school after all and um, did get a doctorate in clinical psychology, Um, and I became very interested in family therapy. It made a lot of sense to me because it was very systemic, and I had had enough of sort of the Freudian all-internal business as uh, explaining human behavior and human distress. So I've spent time training as a family therapist after I got my doctorate, and um, I've worked pretty much uh, my whole career in community uh, mental health settings. Uh, and in addition, I have done teaching at a postgraduate family therapy institute, Ackerman, um, training family therapists, and I've uh, also done some teaching in a doctoral, I'm sorry, a, a master's level, uh, and an MFT program, Masters in Family Therapy. Okay. So that's pretty much my training.
1: Sounds pretty extensive. We're talking about internalized oppression. Could you describe what that means?
4: Well, first of all, I have to say that I what I need to give you is that this is my framework for understanding. Terms are used differently across contexts. There's no one understanding of the term internalized oppression or internalized racism or internalized sexism. I use that term to mean that the person who is subjugated by virtue of the particular group that they belong to and that we're talking about racism, but this applies across different collective groups around gender identity, uh, sexual orientation. For the privileged group, I'm going to be more specific here. So, for example, there are some people who will say, well, whites have internalized superiority and people of color have internalized inferiority. And I am not a fan of that particular use of language, Uh, and it's only because I think it's really important to make clear that the privileged position and the subjugated position don't mirror each other. It's mm. a very distinct situation, and so you can't take one and say, oh, everything that applies here should apply here. So it's very different if you use that other language, which I don't, which is to say that white people have internalized their superiority and black people have internalized their inferiority. Yes, that's, that's one way and it makes sense, but it's different when you when you're internalizing the superiority and... In fact, that experience is very different from internalizing inferiority. And in fact, you in the privileged position are part of a legacy of co-creating and continuing that legacy. So I like to make it distinct, you which is to say that if I'm in the the, uh, privileged group, whether that's race or class or whatever, when I act in certain ways, I am acting in a racist way or I'm acting in a classist way. And if I'm in the subjugated group and I am manifesting either feelings or behavior that reflect oppression, I have internalized oppression.
1: You've done quite a bit of work on internalized racism. I'm wondering what led you to that work in your practice with families.
4: Well, I think I have to start. And I I feel also... Because whenever you're talking to somebody, you really, you really do need to know their frame. I'm serious about words. I understand. <laughs> so I just want to say about racism before I even, you know, go further, because racism gets used, and I think again, it's a very wide uh, understanding of what that means. My frame around racism, uh, and it's the frame of. I think I first got this frame from James Jones. He wrote a book about racism. He's a psychologist. He makes a clear distinction between prejudice and racism because sometimes people want to equate racism and prejudice. And the main difference has to do with power, and it has to do with systems. We prejudice. We might not like a particular thing, food, people. However, what makes oppression so distinctive and so powerful is the fact that it's empowered. It is empowered in the systems that are often embody the thought and the practices, support the idea, and actually try to ensure that it remains or comes to be that people of African descent or other people of color are deemed inferior. So it's a much more complex phenomenon than some individual expression of prejudice. From that point of view, I would say black people can be prejudiced against whites, but because we are not generally empowered in this society, that we're not engaging in racism, individual uh, prejudice, and a systemic system that operates on multiple levels to make the supposition that people of color are inferior. And to actually have policies that maintain or try to maintain that.
1: The distinction is clear. So, with that distinction being made, what led you? What led me to this sorry. work?
4: Right. So, the first thing I'd have to say is the. The first lead-in was about racism because I think, even though I knew I wanted to be a therapist and I was very um, interested in, you know, mental health and people's distress and so forth, it was in my college years, which was really the late 60s, early 70s, that I sort of had my own racial awakening. Or I don't know if I'd call it a racial awakening. I, it was the first time I understood this business of of the systemic ways in which this society operated to alienate me from myself. Okay. And that was a huge thing. So at that point, you know, I was still wearing um, relaxed hair, and I suddenly realized that, you know, I had really just been programmed on many different levels. I mean, these are the days of Angela Davis. These are the days Mm -hmm. of George Jackson. I mean, I was... And so that became like an awakening that about... all the ways in which racism has seeped through uh, as a system to alienate us. And so it was clear to me that that was a mental health issue. <laughs> of course, okay. <laughs> when I say that, I mean, I'm not talking about whether it was a mental health issue in terms of system and, and white people, but one can argue that. I don't. That's not what I'm studying. That's not what I'm about. But I, it was clear to me that all of those, the feeling about being alienated from myself is a mental health issue because when you're alienated from yourself, you, it's hard to feel good exactly um, yeah. about certain aspects. And let me be, make another point about words right here. <laughs> I'm pretty idiosyncratic. That's one of the words I would say about myself. So I don't particularly like the ways the term self-hatred gets thrown around mm-hmm. so easily among us. Okay. Um, and the reason I don't is because I think hate is an obliterating feeling. Right. And while maybe there are some of us uh, who walk around who absolutely feel utterly obliterated about our Africanness or our Asianness or whatever, I-, I think that's the rare case. Yeah. I mean, I've had clients say to me, you know, I really just don't like my nose, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or my lips are too big, or I wish my eyes. You know, there there may be particular things that you may feel badly about but i think that most of us can find other things about ourselves that we do feel good about right so i i'm just not cavalier with throwing that term around so when i said it's hard to feel good about yourself i wasn't trying to imply that we could never experience ourselves as good i think there's always been the countervailing uh, processes where on the one hand, oppression attempts to shame us and tell us we're inferior, and the other process is the ways in which our ancestors and we have fought that, Right. Um, you know, strategically to, to create uh, contexts where we could experience ourselves in wonderful ways, and right. that that's part of it as well.
1: Which is part so, of what happened in the 70s. I mean, the whole Black Pride movement was like yes. a countering the inferior narrative.
4: That- yes. So that was the first place that it started. And then, of course, as you start looking into it more and more, you realize that you've taken in, like I was saying about the hair, right? Mm -hmm. I realized I had taken in this idea. And so it became a process of me deciding and being highly motivated because I never was all that keen on, you know, somebody dictating. Um, Okay. (laughs) that I, I wanted to determine, you know, that I wanted to be able to see myself differently. And so, and Bell Hooks talks about this in one of her books about how in, the, in some ways it's in, it's it's often out of our own experience that we sort of can create ideas and theories, yes. right? And so that was true for me. Like, so then it made me wonder, like, how much the rest of us, like, internalizing and then feeling bad or ashamed of your hair, feeling bad or ashamed of your intellect, you know, a variety of things that we have been told are inferior. So it was pretty hand in hand in some way, although again, the racism and understanding systemic piece was pivotal. But even when I went to social work school, I was was all about trying to understand and think about how is racism affecting us and how is our internalization uh, affecting us.
1: Can you describe some ways that internalized racism shows up in the black community?
4: Well, I think one of the ways it shows up, there are some of us who basically don't want to be treated by other black people. We want to have a, a white doctor mm-hmm. or okay. a white dentist or uh, a white contractor. I was. See it as one's own sense of inferiority that then gets put onto other black people uh, and this belief that still the white person is the better trained, is the more intelligent, is the more well-informed. I mean, generally, to make the assumption that some white person is going to be better than some black person is, to me, nothing but racism. I mean, I assume that being competent uh, (laughs) is pretty well distributed across races. So to think that race is going to be the defining factor of being your competence or the quality of your care, I think is problematic. I think sometimes internalized racism shows up, especially when we feel that the other person of color is maybe moving up. This theme of you think you're better than me is very powerful Mm -hmm. in our community. And, you know, it may be powerful in other experiences, too. I'm not claiming that it isn't i don't know because i you know i'm talking out of my experience but you think you're better than me to me is a reflection of one's own sense of having been and being seen as devalued and in some ways feeling devalued Mm -hmm. right and then the other person moving up let's say whether that's education or whether that's economically and then sometimes I think it's a projection. I hate to be using that word cuz that's actually a Freudian word, but actually some there's one or two things about Freudian stuff that that's, I actually that you can, <laughs> can kind of relate to, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and and embrace. Yeah, that um that there's this this a sense that so because you are moving up, you're now looking down on me. Right. Which I think still comes out of that sense of um being devalued and and inferior. Now It's complicated because sometimes, in fact, we do do that, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is why it's no straightforward thing. There are times when people move up and they do adopt a better-than stance, Mm -hmm. and that feeds that. And in that case, I would say that is not simply just internalized inferiority. But I think that even when people who move up are not seeing themselves as superior, not, not removing themselves from relationships um, because they have moved up the ladder. Even when that doesn't happen, I think it really, to me, seems like it is mostly internalized uh, racism and classism, because class is in there, too. I, I need to say this as well. We're talking about racism, but the reality is that all of these different identities that we occupy matter and influence each other. Right. There's a lot of work that's been done around the idea of intersectionality, bell hooks and Kimberly Crenshaw and others, and I think it's important to say that your experience of racism is going to be shaped by your, your class position. It's going to be shaped by your uh, where you locate in terms of your um, sexual orientation. All of these things are impacting each other. So I wouldn't say that being Middle class, for example, means you're immune to racism. Um, I think we all know all too well that that's not the case, but it does provide some buffers Mm -hmm. um, that uh, being working class or low income uh, don't provide. And so all of those shape what people experience. But I think the the business of sort of feeling like you're being left behind and therefore you think you're better than me, is often, I think, stemming from that internal experience. At the same time, I think we have to be accountable. Those of us who do move up, we have to be accountable for the way we understand that movement. It can be internalized racism to, to go up in the middle class and, and to think you're better, right? It also can be a form of internalized racism, right? But somehow you have earned your way out of your inferiority, which is not and when I say your inferiority, I mean the inferiority that racism implies is that you as a being, as an African being, and that's usually, from our experience, what, what it amounts to, the way in which African people have been considered inferior. But it's not about what you do, per se. it's a, That's who you are. Right. And that's where the shame comes in, is that it's like we've been shamed as a people, right? Just that very uh, Africanness is the source of the shame. So, you know, there's nothing you can do about that, right? So you try to earn yourself, right? But the point is to find ways not to buy into it in the first place.
1: You're listening to Full Circle here on 94.1 FM, KPFA. I'm Theodora, your host for tonight's show. You just heard part one of my interview with Dr. D. Watts-Jones describing the internalized racism. As I mentioned at the top of the show, my goal for this series is to focus on understanding what happened to us and develop strategies for healing from the trauma of living in such a racialized society. Let's take a deep breath and listen to part two of my interview with Dr. D. Watts-Jones. Can we agree that these words that you're using, racial inferiority and superiority, can we agree that they're all myths, that they're not based on yes. reality? Would that yes, help as we go forward? Yes, so-
4: that's what I was trying to say. That, like, I think when you start thinking that you earn your way out of this label, right, like, it's a way of still accepting that label, right? Or I mean,
1: believing it. Yeah, you're believing it exists.
4: Yeah. It's like that becomes a reference. But it's like one of the things that I have recently, in recent years, begun to think about, the the expression that we've had about you have to be two and three times as good. Exactly. Yes. That I have begun to, I mean, I think that expression really came out of just a acknowledgement of how difficult it was for black people to, you know, overcome the barriers that were in our way. It's just a, a reality, and that oftentimes people have to be. And at the same time, I've begun to think that it's been a double edged sword because with those words, you know, reverberating is also, I think, on the other edge of that is like you have to be two and three times good to make up, <laughs> not just for the barrier, but for who you are. Right. Yeah. And I think that we're always faced with this no matter what, I think it goes up the class ladder with proving that we're not. I think that always hovers, you know, over proving that you have bought into that assumption. So part of this thing for excellence, and this is tricky, and I guess it's still part of what I was saying about thinking you can earn your way out of it, that If you make that the center of what you're doing, and there's no, I racism is to try to be so great and put some really unrelenting demands on oneself in the name of, and I don't think we say this out loud to ourselves, but that what we're doing is trying to prove, and I don't think you ever arrive. So I have come to the point where I think, look, we have passions, we have things we're interested in. Let's, move out from a place of self-determination to do, you know, as best we can with our passions, simply because it's an expression of who we are and what we're here to deliver. Doing your best, not as some proof of anything to anyone, but because that's what you're here to do, mm-hmm. and you pursue it that way. Your your own worth doesn't hang in the balance with it. And that's what I was trying to say about sometimes when people achieve up the ladder they may be mistaken when they think they've earned their, you don't earn your way out of that you you either going to move from that as the center or you're going to put yourself in the center and say this is what i want for myself i'm doing it. and i worry sometimes even with our kids mm-hmm. you know the way in which we sort of make them feel like well you have to be excellent you have to be right. you have to be you know it just feels too defensive um, as opposed to well you know what are you enjoying well you know how much did you give to it you know did you enjoy giving to it how can we help you expand with this? So it's not that you're giving up doing well, but it's what is it in the service of? You I know, mean, like even though it's a, it's a both and, we can't help but have internalized some of this, right?
1: So how unconscious is a lot of this stuff?
4: I think a lot of it is, and I would say in my frame, that's implicit racism. All of the messaging that carries the ideas of inferiority, and there are lots of channels from institutions, for criteria, for various positions, and I think to language, to ideas about culture, all of that, to me, is part of the system of, of racism. And so I would say that what I was talking about was the ways in which implicit racism, and I think a lot of it is. When I think of racism, there is both explicit and implicit, and I have thought in the past, I think i Still think this, that implicit is more worrisome because of the fact that it is not recognized.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and oftentimes, it's held as a benign, normal thing. So in that sense, you can really do damage. Exactly. Not realizing. And I think one of the ones that I think this is in keeping with my interest in words and writing and so forth, language is one of the main ways in which I think implicit bias operates.
3: Oh, yes. Yes, um, I agree.
4: I think it, it operates a lot. So for example i think of like there are schools that very explicitly say well you can't wear natural hair right that's very explicit but then there are all the images that come at you like do i see any black women or sent on in, in news podcast as reporters on TV? No. So that's an implicit message. And to me, you don't even realize it. You're just watching TV.
1: Exactly. Uh,
4: And that's why it can be so powerful in that way.
1: And damaging.
4: Yeah. It's too bad. Um, But I I have to say I'm reminded of, again, Chris Rock's movie. This woman spoke and made explicit this notion that so-called good hair, or no, no, not good hair, Mm. relaxed hair, Mm -hmm. relaxes white people. And wow, that was such a powerful thing to make explicit. And so a part of my work, you know, as a therapist, and also, you know, in terms of teaching family therapists or training family therapists, I think is the power of making the implicit explicit. Mm. So when you're depressed about your body, for example... Right. Let's examine what messages have you received that are contributing to that. And then you when you make it explicit, it, it allows you to then um, it becomes external in part. Mm-hmm. It's, it doesn't belong to you, per se. It is something that has influenced it's a particular way of looking, it's a particular way of looking at bodies, right? And you get to decide then whether or not you want to join that particular way of looking at bodies, you know, whether that's skin color, whether that's size, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But you begin to be aware that your depression, for example, is not simply because you are, or even mainly because you are inadequate in some way, you know?
1: Yeah, I think I understand what you're You're trying to say, you mentioned hair texture that relaxed hair is equivalent to good hair right and i think that's one of those Im- implied things it's never it's just kind of normalized and once it became no longer normalized that's part of this journey of internalized racism bringing it to the surface and saying we can do something about that right it's well really it's challenging a decision.
4: the notion of good straight being good right right and so we also then we have the choice of whether we want to collude in that language Exactly. So I, I, when I said that, I, I was mixing up the, the name of the movie that he did the do- it was kind of a documentary more yeah
1: it was called you know. Good Hair
4: yeah it was Good Hair yeah, right but I was very glad he did it I was I- too I'll tell you another one that I really think I'm I'm very stuck with is uh, and uh it's almost like a Herculean thing but I think the way dark gets used you know black got used in a certain way it was mm-hmm. all a pejorative for the most part I feel like dark is the same thing exactly you think that you can think about dark in all these negative ways and that that doesn't uh, influence the way you think about dark skin, skin color has become, again, I don't want to try to say this as widely, but there is a growing population of people who are actually trying to do this work and realize that skin color, light skin color is a privilege. Mm-hmm. In yeah, it is. And then to acknowledge that and how you benefit and how you use that and are you using it in a way that simply reinforces that that's better than or that should be privileged or are you using that uh, in a way that... It speaks to everyone. And when I say everyone, I mean all shades of people of color. So I feel like there are things now that we are talking about among ourselves and even among white people that when I was growing up, there was no way. exactly. It was and unheard think, of. Yeah. It was, that was unheard of. I had to be like, because I think there was shame. Oh, yes. And, and my sense of it is that the more we sort of can decrease some of the shame and begin to talk about some of these things, the reinforcing circle, like, like when you don't talk about it it binds it mhm to you, right? And it, it stays shameful because you keep it as a secret and that means it stays shameful whereas if you can begin to talk about that as a vulnerability which I think it is. It is. It yes. is a vulnerability and the reality is is that we are vulnerable. We're all vulnerable as human beings but when you've been a subjugated on various identities that, that's an increased vulnerability. So the more that you can find a way in a safe environment to begin to talk about it a little bit it loosens its hold. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean dramatically I just mean it's Because it's a long process But you begin to be able to say Oh, okay So now, you know Talking about nappy hair Or kinky hair Like it's just for most of us, I don't think it has nearly, and for some of us, I don't think it has any shame
1: mm-hmm.
4: um, associated with it.
1: So that's part of the healing, is talking about it getting past the shame or allowing yourself to be vulnerable around it can also lead to unbinding which can lead to healing.
4: Yes, I think it's, a, and my idea of healing is that it's you know, it's no abrupt Mm-mm. process. It's about diminishing the energy that some of the wounds have, right? So so that they become less and less powerful in the ways that we think and the ways that we behave.
1: I think healing is a lifelong process.
4: Yes, and I, as someone who believes in multiple lifetimes, right. <laughs> <laughs> think <Okay. it's>
1: multiple. <laughs> so, so in this lifetime, I'm looking at healing praxis, just things that we can do to just be our best selves or just be better and eliminate some of that shame around these topics. I mean, we understand why we have internalized these messages, so there shouldn't be any shame there. The shame is in not facing. We can't heal what we won't face.
4: Well, and also I think when you're under attack, it's very difficult to show your vulnerability. Exactly. And, that makes yeah. sense. and I think even though I'm encouraging us to be a little more vulnerable, I'm not I'm not suggesting that, you know, that one doesn't need to be caught about where and with whom mm-hmm. one does that because you can also end up being re-traumatized. Exactly. Yeah, I think this is why I argued for within group space, um, meaning that Uh, people of color have a chance to get together without the white gaze so to speak. Mm -hmm. All praises to Toni Morrison for her (laughs) that concept and for all that she brought to bear of our experiences to the page. And so I think it lessens the chance of being sort of reshamed, be able to own And I find this is increasingly happening I mean among some of the people in my profession Mm -hmm. uh, that I work with. It's, It's tricky though. It's hard. I've been involved in a group of women some time ago of different women of color having what we call difficult conversations mm-hmm. uh, about racism, classism, you know, oppression. And it really, it went on for all my thing about three years, but we came to a point where the theme came up and it was around skin color and it was around class of some people feeling like they were being devalued by others and that some people weren't being held accountable mm-hmm. for that. And these were all, you know, people in the field who are doing this work and, but you know, you, you gotta, get on this train mm-hmm. somewhere. It's like, look, it's a long ride. It's a long ride. It's a long ride. Like, these these things are, you know, centuries old. Right. But at some point, we got to start, right? I feel hopeful about that. I mean, I, I really do. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I look at some of the work that's being done to really pay attention to what we're dealing with. Like, I, I look at Tanahasi's mm-hmm. work and just him elevating just the whole issue of fear, that fear is what he perceives to be what's going on in so much of our community. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just look at what, even some of the art that's coming out, we're really starting to look at this thing, not simply to enact, but to recognize what we're enacting and how we can do it differently.
1: I do think we're getting intentional about it, It, and I am very hopeful. It's encouraging to know that we are recognizing it, and we are moving past the shame, and we are talking about it, and it is not easy. This is really, really hard work.
4: It is, really really is. And I mean, the shame, I've said this before, that it's really not our shame to own. We need to keep that in mind and what happened was shameful
1: yes (laughs) most definitely
4: oppression is shameful
1: it's shameful
4: and you know that's the other part of the legacy that people have to deal with is the part of when their legacy has been shameful yeah right has perpetrated but I've spent most of my career focused on the subjugated position but I have because of intersectionality I've become more aware of how I have to be accountable for the privileges that I have Right. You know, as being heterosexual, being middle class, and how there's implicitly, you know, things in in there that I haven't recognized that I'm becoming more conscious of so that I don't continue to perpetrate out of those privileged forms of, you know, that I don't become. Classes, which I think we all are affected by all of this. I mean, yes. it's just everywhere.
1: It's all over. It's, a, it's impossible everywhere. to avoid it.
4: Exactly. So
1: we just have to say, let me do the work.
4: Right. That is really, I think, the thing. And I think one of the things you had said about white supremacy, that you feel you hear that term a lot more these days, and it's true, you know, way back when Bell Hooks was using that term, like, instead of racism, oh. she preferred that as making it very clear. I think, though, that what's happening is that, again, they're more comfortable talking about it now as mm-hmm. white superiority because we're at the extreme explicit. And this is how it's been in the, in the popular culture in general. Like, you're racist means you're a skinhead or, you know, you're explicitly right, And that's a framework that leaves out a lot that racism is much more pervasive than that and you don't have to be an explicit racist in order to be racist
1: or to believe in the myth of white superiority right but i really appreciate you taking the time to do this to have this conversation
4: well thank you for um the opportunity to share some of my thoughts and experiences
1: You just heard part two of my interview with Dr. D. Watts-Jones discussing internalized racism. You can find the complete interview on our website at kpfaapprentice.org. Now, let's take a pause to listen to India Ari's Get It Together. One shot to your heart without breaking your skin. No one has the power to hurt you like your kin. Kept it inside, didn't tell no one else. Didn't even want to admit it to yourself. And now your chest burns and your
3: back aches from 15 years of holding the pain and now you only have yourself to blame if you continue to live this way get, get it together heal your body get it together you have to heal your heart whatsoever so you will reap get it together
1: Life, life. You just heard part two. Welcome back to Full Circle here on KPFA 94.1 FM. I'm your host, Theodora. You just heard India Ari's Get It Together, reminding us of how important it is to heal our bodies and our hearts. She also told us how most of our deepest wounds come from those we love the most. Before the music break, you heard my interview with Dr. D. Watts-Jones talking about internalized racism. I'd like to now welcome to the studio my next guest, Dr. Taj Johns, Ph.D., Doctor Taj is on the faculty of St. Mary's College in Arinda, California, where she teaches transformative leadership. She has a strong interest in understanding the effects of internalized oppression on human development and co founded Sasha, an acronym for self affirming soul healing Africans. Welcome to the show, Doctor Taj. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Can we start by you telling us just a little bit about yourself and your journey to yeah. doing this work? Um, I, I was started the Sasha group with uh, a couple
5: of other African Americans. There was actually 14 of us that did it for 10 years. Ooh. And um, we met once a month and we discussed in turn we discussed racism we realized after about a year and a half that it was racism is like a virus and it keeps changing so we had to do something that was deeper than that and what we realized is that we had to look at our own internalized racism mm, okay. how were we perpetuating it how were we participating in our own oppression and so sasha we developed sasha self-affirming soul healing africans and it is a body based um, it was a body-based group, so we use a lot of breath work to find out where we're holding this okay. in our body and how can we heal it from those places.
1: So, kind of like some, some somatic kind of stuff, somatic, yes, yes. mind-body kind of thing. D. Watch Jones talked about internalized racism, and I always like to ask people, "How would you define internalized racism?" Um, and I think she said it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. But for me, the
5: main thing, something else she said was that she, I think she said the way we react to others could be the internalized racism. See, I think it's two ways. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's I'm listening to the dominant culture and what the dominant culture says about me, about my intelligence, my size or anything. And I internalize that. And I begin to judge myself from that value. So if they say that all black people are dumb and I've internalized that and I'm not putting forth the best or all that I can of my own life because I feel that I'm dumb, and why do this, right? That's internalized oppression. So it happens to me and then it can also happen that I could look at someone who's black when they come into the room and go, "Oh god, he's stupid. I know he's stupid." That's my internalized oppression.
1: So it works two ways. So it's how you see yourself And how you see other people within your group. Yes. So that's the internalized part. So how would you describe this group, this project? How did it happen? Uh, The Sasha group? The Sasha group.
5: Um, There was four women. We came together and we said, let's write a book. And so we started looking at our lives. And then we realized, one of the women was in the group, we realized that it's just more than just looking at our lives, and let's invite other black people into the group. And it was a very, it became a very intimate setting. And like I said, we worked together for 10 years, and then we brought in uh, another group of people. I think it was about 14 of them. We brought them in, and we did work with them. And um, it was a strong connection. We We just really made a strong connection, and it was all... African bass, so the healing projects that we did they were African based. we had Aretha Franklin singing for us, and you know we were moving to her music and not moving to something that we couldn't relate to, but we you know so it was yeah, it was about us and it was about our culture, and how can we uh, the saying that we said the most is what we did to survive racism was okay, and that's what we did within the Sasha group, is we held everyone in whatever their trauma was, and let them know it is okay to be here, to be vulnerable. Like Dee talked about the shame, and we had what we call a shame scarf. You're feeling a shame, and you're talking? We put a scarf over your face, and you sit, and you wow. talk to the group. <laughs> okay. you, know, you know, so you could sit and talk, and, and feel the shame because the shame is healing. And it's real. Yeah, it's real. And to be able to touch it is healing. It's that's being vulnerable. And we came up with the term that's called a new vulnerability. And the new vulnerability is when I am able to step into the world because I've done some work. I'm able to step into the world and I feel alive. I feel I like to always say the way you feel that first three months when you fall in love, that first three months when I can do anything here. I can conquer the world. Well, that's the new vulnerability, where you're feeling open
1: to the world, and I can experiment, I feel confident. Yeah. so How powerful is yes. that? That's powerful. I've never yeah. even heard about the scarf thing. You never told me about that oh, part. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that would be um, amazing. Yeah. I want yeah. us to talk a little bit about your book. Tell uh-huh. us a little bit about the book that is... Upcoming, Up, it's upcoming. Yes, and I hope to come back when
5: my book is like well, in one solid piece. And I hope to know. have
1: you back for uh, the entire hour.
5: Okay, um, the book we have mentioned in talking about internalized racism. Um, you know, we get it from the television, we get it from our parents, the school teachers, and so in my book, I explore where did I learn that language for myself. It's a memoir. And so how did where did I learn that language about my lips are too big or my rear is too big or where did I learn that? Hmm. And so I try to trace it back. I try to trace it back to the old neighborhood. I try to trace it. I not try to. I trace it back to an old neighborhood. I was raised in an African American neighborhood until I was uh, 11 years old, okay. and then I was moved to a white neighborhood, Ooh. and everything changed. I was like some. There was like four black families in this white neighborhood, and everything changed. So the book talks about how do I? How did I? F- Find myself? What choices did I have? I was being ostracized by one group, but not wanted by another group. Hmm. What choices did I have, and what did I do? It sounds and how did familiar. I survive that? Yes. Yeah, I bet
1: it sounds familiar to a lot of people yes. out yeah. there that are listening tonight. How hard was that to write?
5: It's very hard. <laughs> I've been doing it for a long time. Because it is hard. It is a hard... It's going back to a lot of old wounds. And remembering stuff that I thought, well...
1: That really did happen, huh? Mm. You know, so. We talked about how it's maybe telling the secrets you know, yeah. of the community. This is something we kind of don't yes. like to discuss in the black community. Yes, yeah. um, That makes it difficult. Even doing this show and talking about this subject's making, it's really hard for me yeah. to do that. Yes.
5: Well, we tell secrets.
1: And I don't want
5: to feel I'm betraying anything. So it's like I'm doing this strange dance. I know I
1: want to say it. And then... I'm, Like, what happens when I say it, you know? Strange things Mm -hmm. can happen. But I think at the end of the day, there's light and healing at the end of that tunnel. Yes. So, you're going to come back? I'm going to come back. For the entire hour, hour, and we'll just talk all about healing strategies, because that's your specialty. Yes. Is how to heal from this. Um, In our final minute, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Yes, I
5: would love to add this, that it's... You know, that Dr. Watzak talked about um, being too black, not black enough. So in my dissertation and my research that I did, and it was on the Sasha group, one of my findings that I came up with, and I want to leave this with everyone, there are as many ways of being black as there are black people. Mm. And once we embrace that, once we embrace that, we can move forward.
1: So how come we don't know about all these different ways of being black? Uh we
5: see them and we criticize others who aren't black like me. <laughs> we criticize folks who don't look like us, who don't behave like us, even though they're black. You know, that's part of that internalized stuff that we do.
1: It's put, it, it, so we have this idea of what we should be, how we should behave. And yes. when we don't,
5: Yes, when you're we, either
1: not black enough or
5: you're too black. Too black. Yes.
1: So, so how do you win that? Um it's really
5: becoming authentic with yourself, becoming, coming into that place of your own center. And that's what Sasha was about. It was like knowing when I'm at my center, knowing when I'm grounded in myself and in my beliefs. And it makes it hard to be pushed off. And it makes it hard to be triggered by some external forces. That's the best way of saying that.
1: Which is what I learned from you. Dr. Taj was one of my professors at St. Mary's College in the social justice leadership program she gave me courage and she encouraged me to be authentic and I wouldn't be sitting here without her oh well thank you you're listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA I'm your host Theodora and I've been talking to Dr. Taj Johns about internalized racism Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I just, that's all I have to say is thank you. I'd also like to thank Dr. D. Watts-Jones for talking or to me tonight and sharing her insights on this very difficult topic. I want to remind our audience um, that KPFA Apprenticeship Program is currently recruiting for the next group of First Voice Apprentices, Group 46. We're accepting applications for spring 2020. If you like what you hear on Full Circle every Friday night at 7 p.m. and you're interested in learning how to be a radio broadcaster, go to kpfaapprentice.org and click to apply. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 235. I'd also like to let our audience know that tomorrow... The Berkeley Video Film Festival is featuring the film Gina's Journey, a documentary that describes Regina Mason's quest to uncover the history of her ancestor, William Grimes, who was part of the Underground Railroad. The screening takes place at 7.45 p.m. at the East Bay Media Center Performance Space at 1939 Addison Street in Berkeley. For more information, call 510 Eight four three three six nine nine. We have reached the end of tonight's show. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. D. Watts Jones and Dr. Taj Johns, PhD. I'd also like to thank you for listening. Please go to our website, KPFA apprentice.org to hear the full interview with dr d watch jones you'll also find links to additional information about our guests and resources to learn more about tonight's topic i also want to let you know that in a couple of weeks on november the 15th david a former apprentice, graduate apprentice David Legrand and a current apprentice Eric Datboy Media will be talking about colorism in ethnic communities. Colorism is very a uh, much a part of internalized racism. And they're going to be discussing that specific topic. It affects many communities of color. I'd also like to let you know that Next week, Full Circle will feature Eric Datboy Media and his new series, Do-Rags and Conversations. Our executive producer for tonight's show is Ms. M. Our technical director is Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production assistant. Thank you, Free Will and Franklin, who's on the board tonight, for his invaluable help with tonight's show. And a special shout out to KC, our amazing tech assistant. I've been your host, Theodora, and as always, thank you for joining us tonight on Full Circle. We're going to close out this broadcast with Sumi by Wale as we make space for La Onda Bajita. Up next, stay tuned.
2: On my way to Bootsy Bellow, where hell are the hoes? Try and think what I'ma tell them when they get alone. I'm a glutton for women that shouldn't yearn for. Shouldn't be tempted, but baby, I like to hurt. Or maybe cause I was searching, I found me the perfect person. But me and her didn't work out. She buried what you wrote much. women probably could have been a feminist cause I respect them, but Lord, I got polygamy problems. The hoodie come from bunnies. spend the money. It's therapeutic the way the shit. They don't think that you care to buy. So we buying Prada, Balenciaga, like it is a. And the Ferrari, my favorite guard and tax problems. Pierre Mars, I dropped 10 on my last visit. And half that up in sacks, our favorite black businesses Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black Yeah, uh-huh, yeah Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black yeah. Yo, 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 look, look Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black Smack out two racks on handmade new rags. Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black That's everybody from sports to college class to rap and back. I I Hold up, let, let oh, yo, love people, people. The highlight is a movie win, promise a sequel. Handbitch hey, on my second album, how was you sleeping? Dropped the album with Seinfeld, they thought I was tweaking. A prophet, them genius. I'm flying with Lena,
3: I'm riding with Nina.